Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. The next four weeks, we'll feature John Stott in a series called Four Portraits of Christ. Each week will feature a different gospel. Today, John Stott begins with part one, the Gospel of Matthew. The uniqueness of Christianity is in Jesus Christ. Those are the words of Professor John Mbiti of Kenya, a well-known African theologian, and of course he's dead right. The uniqueness of Christianity is in Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't claim uniqueness or finality for Christianity itself as it comes in many, many different shapes and sizes in different parts of the world. We claim finality and uniqueness for Jesus Christ alone. He has no rivals, no peers, no successors. Jesus Christ is utterly incomparable. He is unique. But which Jesus are we talking about? Because the problem is that there are many different Jesuses on offer in the world today, many of which are mutually contradictory. For example, there is Jesus the ascetic on the one hand, and Jesus the wine-bibber and gluttonous man on the other. Or again, there is Jesus the bourgeois gentleman, on the one hand, and Jesus the champion of the poor, on the other. Or there is Jesus the clown of God's spell, Jesus Christ superstar, Jesus the critic of the establishment, and Jesus the upholder of the establishment. According to Mr. Anderton, whose name may be known to some of us here, Jesus is a practical policeman, of unmatchable excellence. Then there is Jesus the capitalist, or according to Arthur Scargill, there is Jesus the socialist. There is even Jesus the revolutionary, Jesus the freedom fighter, Jesus the urban guerrilla, Jesus the 20th century Che Guevara. There are dozens of Jesuses on offer as in a supermarket today. Will the real Jesus please stand up? Because that is the question really before us during these next four weeks. And over against those caricatures and many others that we could mention if we had time, we're going to say to one another there is only one authentic Jesus. To be sure, he possesses some of the characteristics of the caricatures which I mentioned just now, but there is only one authentic Jesus, and that is the Jesus of the biblical revelation, the Jesus of the four Gospels. We are then reminding ourselves that God in his providence has given us a fourfold portrait of Jesus. He's not given us one gospel, but the gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, 
and according to John, four portraits of Jesus. As one of the early church fathers said, Irenaeus, at the end of the second century AD, it is like the four corners of the earth, the four winds of heaven, the four pillars of the house. We've got to have four gospels, he argued. Now, he's still only one Jesus, the one and only Jesus, but he's viewed from four different angles. He is one flashing diamond, but with four flashing facets. One person with four faces. Now, if you, some of you are theological students, and that's why I put in this little aside, this is the reason why so-called redaction criticism is very valuable. Because what the redaction critics are telling us, and have been doing so only for the past 10 or 20 years, is that the gospel writers are authors in their own right. We are not to think of them as faceless compilers of other people's ideas or other people's material. True, they were not biographers in the modern sense of the word. They were not historians in the modern understanding of history. Nor were they merely chroniclers. Nor were they diarists who are simply recording their own memoirs. No, they are evangelists. They are gospelers. The very word gospel applied to these four documents means that they are sui generis. There is no other document in the world like them. Only four gospels have ever been written. And they proclaim the good news of Jesus. But the authors of the four gospels were witnesses to Jesus Christ and they were theologians in their own right. And each of them had his particular theological emphasis about Jesus that he wanted to lay. So I hope and think it's going to be fascinating for us to ask ourselves these next Sundays, what is the particular theological emphasis of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? And tonight we concentrate on Matthew. How would you answer the question? What do you think is the particular emphasis of Matthew? Well, the line I want to pursue with you, and we shall be looking at the text and looking at many passages in a way that we may not have time to turn to our Bibles in each case, is that Matthew portrayed Jesus as the Christ of Old Testament Scripture. He portrayed Jesus as the personal embodiment or fulfillment of centuries of Old Testament expectation. With that in mind, would you be good enough to turn to my text? You'll find it in the New Testament section on page uh, 4, Matthew 5, and verse 17. It's a verse you won't find in Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of a number of unique Verses in Matthew. Matthew 5.17 Do not think that I have come to abolish 
the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to bring them to their completion and their fulfillment he meant in myself. I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So fulfillment is really the key word of the Gospel of Matthew. Did you know that Matthew's Gospel contains about a hundred quotations from or allusions to the Old Testament? A dozen times Matthew uses his own characteristic formula that you won't find in the other Gospels when he says this took place or that took place or all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet or prophets sometimes named may be fulfilled. This took place in order to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. A dozen times that particular formula comes in Matthew. Matthew has meditated deeply in the life and ministry of Jesus on the one hand and in the Old Testament scriptures in the other and he has found as the Holy Spirit has illumined his mind a remarkable correspondence between the two. A correspondence that is not just verbal and superficial but profound, substantial and organic. He finds Jesus in his own person the fulfillment of centuries of Old Testament expectation. On one occasion when large crowds were gathered round Jesus, he said this remarkable thing. Luke mentions it as well, but it's particularly Matthean in its thinking. Jesus, surrounded by these crowds, said this to them, Blessed are your eyes, for they see. And blessed are your ears, for they hear. Because I tell you, many prophets and righteous people wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And they wanted to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. In other words, the prophets and the righteous people in the past were living in the age of expectation. But you are living in the age of fulfillment. Your eyes are actually seeing and your ears are actually hearing what many prophets and righteous people have spoken about for centuries. So Jesus did not think of himself as another prophet predicting the coming of the Messiah in the future. Jesus presented himself as the fulfillment of all prophecy, all the converging lines of prophetic testimony found their fulfillment in him. Now, don't you think that's why Matthew's Gospel is put at the beginning of the New Testament? It wasn't, of course, the first book to be written. I mean, Paul's epistles were almost certainly written before Matthew. And as for the Gospels, most scholars believe that Mark was written before Matthew. So why put Matthew at the beginning? Isn't this the reason? That right through Matthew's Gospel, he's looking back into the Old Testament and claiming that Jesus is the fulfillment 
of this and that and the other in the, New, in the Old Testament. So Matthew is a kind of bridge gospel, a transition gospel. The gospel that presents Christ as the fulfillment of everything that has gone before. Well, all that is introduction. I want now to get down a little bit to the particulars. As I meditated on this theme, what comes home to me is this. Matthew takes the three major figures of Old Testament history. Abraham, Moses, and David. Don't you agree? There weren't any greater figures in the Old Testament than those three. Abraham, the patriarch, Moses, the lawgiver, and David, the great king of Israel and Judah. And as he takes these three, he presents Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of everything which they, Abraham, Moses, David, imperfectly stood for. So shall we think about that together? Firstly, Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. Jesus Christ is the one through whom God's promises to Abraham and his seed come to be fulfilled. So if you'd like to look back a page or two to the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, you'll find that Abraham is mentioned twice by name in the first two verses. Matthew begins with a genealogy, very important to Jewish people. Matthew is a Jewish Christian writing for Jewish Christians mainly. And he says at the beginning that he's presenting the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and so on. Twice he mentions Abraham by name. So deliberately Matthew traces Jesus back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish race. Abraham with whom God entered into a special covenant or agreement by which it said, I will be your God and you and your seed will be my people. Abraham, to whom God made promises of blessing for himself and for his family, and Abraham, through whom God promised to bless all the families of the earth. You know, I venture to say that if you don't understand God's covenant with Abraham, you can't understand the Old Testament at all. In fact, I don't think you can understand the Bible at all. God's covenant with Abraham that is uh, described in Genesis 12 is the foundation of the whole of the Old Testament story. The Old Testament story is the story of the covenant family of God. The people of God with whom God had entered into this agreement. And now that's why God in the Old Testament is called the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Matthew says Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the posterity of Abraham, in whose person God's promises are fulfilled. And then Matthew uh, qualifies this in a rather important way, actually a very important way that we need to understand. Matthew tells us that it isn't physical descent from Abraham 
which guarantees membership of the covenant community. Just after this, we skip a chapter, and in Matthew 3, he tells us about the ministry of John the Baptist. And our certain Sadducees and Pharisees came to John the Baptist to be baptized, and John was very rude to them. John called these leaders of the Jewish community a brood of vipers. And he says to them, don't imagine. He's talking, note this, he's talking to the leaders of the Jewish nation, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He says to them, don't imagine that you can say, we have Abraham to our father. Because John the Baptist said, I tell you, God is able to make children for Abraham out of these stones. Just because you think you have Abraham as your father, don't imagine that you, your membership of the people of God is guaranteed. Don't imagine that you are immune to the judgment of God. God can raise up from these stones children to Abraham. No, the real descendants of Abraham, Jesus went on to explain, are not the physical descendants, but his spiritual descendants who share his faith and these spiritual descendants of Abraham include the Gentiles as well as the Jews. People like the Magi who Matthew describes in the in-between chapter 2 who came to Jesus, the baby Jesus, and who brought in their homage and their worship, forerunners, harbingers of millions of Gentiles like ourselves, who are the children of Abraham, by faith and not by blood. Now this revolutionary notion that the covenant people of God, in fulfillment to God's promise to Abraham, include Gentiles as well as Jews, it's a revolutionary notion that keeps recurring throughout the Gospel of Matthew, in spite of the fact that Matthew's is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. It's written by a Jew for Jews, but it is he who says that Gentiles are included in the covenant people of God. So Abraham's physical descendants reject Jesus and are on that account themselves rejected. Jesus pronounces woes of judgment upon the leaders of the people of Israel. And when Pilate washed his hands, a very important verse in Matthew 27 verse 25, he says, all the people cried, his blood be on us and on our children. All the people, the whole Jewish nation rejected him. And Jesus was left alone, the one and only survivor of the people of God, the one and only true descendant of Abraham, for all the rest had rejected him. And then something amazing happens. That Jesus promises that although Abraham's physical posterity has failed, except for himself, he's the one and only final survivor who is loyal, he would gather round himself a new and spiritual posterity united to him by faith. Listen to these verses from Matthew. 
The kingdom of God will be taken away from you, that is the Jews, and given to another people. Matthew 21:43 that it'll be given to believing gentiles and Jesus said that his blood was going to be shed for the establishment of a new covenant which was in fact the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham and then do you remember this verse many Jesus said many will come from the east and from the west that is from the gentile nations and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out. Matthew 8 verse 11. So the twelve apostles will be the nucleus of a new Israel as the twelve tribes had been the nucleus of the old Israel. And when we come to the end of Matthew's gospel, in the Great Commission, the apostles are sent out into the world to gather the nations into the new Israel of God. The covenant community, the true children of Abraham, by faith in Jesus. Well, we could really stop there. I mean, it's pretty amazing and wonderful by itself, isn't it? Did you ever get hold of that truth? Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. So that if you're united to Christ, you are united to Abraham through Christ. That's the truth. We are Abraham's children. We who are Gentiles, who may not have a drop of Jewish blood in our veins. We are the children of Abraham. We have entered into the covenant of God with Abraham by faith in Jesus. Wonderful. Abraham, our father. 4,000 years ago. Well, we better hurry on. Secondly, Matthew presents Jesus Christ not only as the seed of Abraham, but as the successor of Moses. Well, of course, the Jews regarded Moses with enormous reverence as their lawgiver, their teacher and the first in a long line of prophets. But in Deuteronomy 18, Moses had said, verse 15, The Lord God will raise up from among you a prophet like myself, and you must listen to him. Deuteronomy 18:15, very important verse. And because of that came the Jewish expectation of that prophet who should come into the world. And some thought that the Messiah would be that prophet. So when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, do you remember? The heaven Moses appeared on the mountain. It's important to remember Moses appeared on that occasion. The heavenly voice said, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And every Jew would have recognized those words as an allusion to Deuteronomy 18.15. I will read, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me. Listen to him. So the heavenly voice was saying, this is the new Moses. This is the successor of Moses. This is the teacher, my teacher. Listen to him. 
Well, Matthew depicts Jesus as the new Moses. Not only the seed of Abraham, but the new Moses. True, he doesn't ever precisely use those words. But he presents Jesus as the teacher who taught with great authority. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew records, he says when Jesus had finished all these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them with one who had authority, like Moses, and not like their scribes. Now did you know this? Matthew arranges the teaching of Jesus in five great blocks of teaching material. The first is in chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The second is in chapter 10, the Mission Charge to the Twelve. The third is in chapter 13, a whole series of parables. The fourth is in chapter 18, about discipleship. And the fifth is in Matthew 24, 25, about the second coming of Jesus to judge. Five great blocks of teaching. Some scholars have said, well, surely Matthew is presenting his gospel as the new Pentateuch. In place of the five books of Moses, we have these five blocks of teaching by the new Moses. The new Pentateuch of the new Moses. Well, as a matter of fact, I think that's rather improbable. But it's quite an interesting idea which some scholars have had. But even if it is improbable, the analogy between Jesus and Moses is very plain in Matthew's Gospel. For example, Herod tried to destroy Jesus as Pharaoh, that he tried to destroy the second Moses, as Pharaoh tried to destroy the first Moses, both when they were baby boys. Again, the second Moses, Jesus, fled to Egypt. He was taken there by his parents and emerged from Egypt to begin his public ministry a little later, fulfilling the pattern of the Exodus, like the second Moses. Again, the second Moses went up a mountain to preach the Sermon on the Mount, as the first Moses went up Mount Sinai to give the law. So there are several passages in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is depicted, portrayed as the second Moses. But having said that, I think I need to add this, that the second Moses differed from the first Moses in at least two regards. First, he was more radical in his ethical teaching. You know the Sermon on the Mount well enough, don't you, to remember that in Matthew 5 there are the so-called six antitheses, where Jesus said, you've heard that it was said by those of old, but I say to you something different. Jesus was not contradicting Moses. There are many people who make that foolish mistake. Jesus never contradicted Moses. What Jesus was contradicting in their six antitheses were the scribal misinterpretations of Moses and the scribal distortions of Moses. For what the scribes and Pharisees were trying to do by their casuistry was to reduce the challenge of the law of Moses. They found the law of Moses very difficult to obey, so they tried to make it a little more manageable. 
So they said, well, the law of Moses only applies to our words and to our deeds, and we only require to give an external conformity to his teaching. And Jesus said, no, you're mistaken. The law has to be applied not only to your words and deeds, but to your inner thoughts that nobody sees but God alone. And when in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus said, your, the, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he meant that Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper. It is a righteousness of the heart. Have you ever noticed how often the heart is mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. You can commit adultery, Jesus said, in your heart. Don't lay up treasure on earth, but in heaven, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christian righteousness is a righteousness of the heart. And that is why the moral teaching of Jesus is more radical. The new Moses is more radical, goes right down to the roots of our human personality in the transformation that we call the new birth. But if the teaching of the new Moses is more radical than the teaching of the old, it is be also more gentle. Take my yoke upon you. Now the Jews used to refer to the Torah, the law of Moses, as the yoke. They refer to it as the yoke of Torah. But Jesus offered himself to them in place of the law of Moses, of the fulfillment of the law of Moses, to be their teacher. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And if you learn from me, he went on, you don't need to be worried because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And I am meek and gentle in heart. So the teaching of Jesus is the light and easy yoke of a gentle master. He is the new Moses. We are to obey him. He is more radical than the first Moses, but he's also more gentle. Well, there's a great deal there too we could think about, and our time is rapidly passing. So thirdly, Jesus is presented in Matthew's Gospel not only as the seed of Abraham, not only as the new Moses, but as the son of David, now the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament got off to a bad start with Saul. Saul was a rotter who disobeyed God on several important occasions. So God rejected him and in his place David was chosen whom God called a man after my own heart. Now it's true that David too was a very frail, fallible, sinful human being but his heart was fixed. You've only got to read the Psalter to know that. You read the Psalms of David. He says, my heart is fixed. And you read in the Psalms of David his devotion to God, his hunger for God, in spite of all his sinfulness. So God made a covenant with David, promising that he would establish the line of David, the royal line of David, and the throne of David, Forever and ever and ever. 
So in consequence the Jews were looking forward to the messianic king. When the Messiah arrived they were quite sure he would be descended from David. Because he would occupy David's throne according to God's promise. In consequence Matthew is at pains to teach that Jesus was the son of David. You go back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 again. Matthew begins the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus was descended by, from David. Both, it seems, through his foster father, Joseph, who became his legal father, and through his actual mother, Mary. They both seem to have been descended from David. He was doubly the son of David. And so he was born the king of the Jews in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. And it's important to remember these things nine times in the Matthew's Gospel. Nine times he is called the son of David. Many more than in the other Gospels. In fact, than all of them put together. And therefore he was the heir to David's throne. Now remember this when we studied the theme of the kingdom of God in Matthew, which is one of the prominent themes of his gospel. Because although the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God, it is the reign of God, God exercises his rule through the Messiah, through the son of David, through the messianic king. It is Jesus who inaugurated the kingdom of God, and it is to Jesus that the messianic throne belongs. So Jesus went about announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. At last, after centuries of waiting, he announced the good news that the kingdom of God had come in and with his person, because he was the king, the son of David. His mighty works were signs of the kingdom. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, he said, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He taught the ethics of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, the values of the kingdom, the moral standards of the kingdom. And he urged his disciples to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His parables illustrated the nature of the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom throughout the world. And he predicted that it would spread like yeast in the leaven. It would grow like the mustard seed until birds, that's the Gentiles, nested in its branches and reached the uttermost parts of the earth. And he predicted the final triumph of the kingdom of God. And he said, one day the king is going to return himself. And the king will sit upon the throne of his kingdom and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will hold in his hand the destiny of the nations because he is the king, God's king, the son of David. Well, isn't it wonderful? The scriptures are so rich. Let me recapitulate and then a very brief conclusion. Matthew's emphasis is on the continuity of between Jesus and the Old Testament. Jesus was no upstart, no afterthought, no innovator. Jesus is the fulfillment of centuries of preparation and expectation. So to confess Jesus as the seed of Abraham 
is to affirm continuity, the continuity of the covenant of God. The same covenant community, we are the children of Abraham, we have inherited the covenant God made with Abraham, the same covenant community, except that in Christ it includes the Gentiles as well as the Jews. To confess Jesus as the successor of Moses is to affirm the continuity of the law of God. God's moral standards and absolutes have not changed. It's only that the second Moses is more radical and more gentle than the first. But there are still moral absolutes for us to obey. To confess Jesus as the son of David is to affirm the continuity of the kingdom of God. Although in Christ the kingdom is neither national nor political, but a spiritual, international community that finds its focus in Jesus. Well, with all that detail, what's the main lesson we have to learn? Give me just another minute or two to meditate with you on this theme of unity, the unity of the Old and New Testaments, and continuity. I just believe that this is the message that God wants us to take away tonight. Because, you see, our Western culture is rapidly disintegrating. Our thinking, as those of us who are Westerners, I know there are Africans, Asians, Latin Americans here, but those of us who are Westerners and are conscious of the disintegration of our culture, our thinking becomes increasingly atomistic, and less and less holistic. Some of you are students who come up to the university. You know what it is that in the universities of the world today, because of the great explosion of knowledge, specialization gets narrower and narrower. Until, as some people have said, we learn more and more about less and less until we come to know everything about nothing. And it's not only true between the specializations getting narrower, it's also true within the specializations. Take history. We always tease historians, don't you? If you don't, start doing it today. It's fun. <laughs> and tease historians by asking them a historical question. And they always take refuge in the same answer, oh, that's not my period. <laughs> and their period gets shorter and shorter and shorter as they specialize. That is true of Western culture in every respect. So, because of this sense of, of disintegration of knowledge, many people are looking for a unifying principle which will integrate their worldview so that they can see things whole. So that they learn to see the wood the forest, and not just the trees, the individual trees, still less only their bark, or their leaves, or their sap, or their blossom, or their fruit. No, we get the whole picture, the wood, and not just the trees. Christians declare that Jesus Christ is that unifying principle. In him all things hold together. It is Jesus who teaches us to see things 
whole. We are right to date events BC and AD because all BC history converged upon the historic Jesus and found fulfillment in him. And all history AD has diverged from Jesus so that the world church on its goes out on its world mission to gather in the nations to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the focal point for world history. And Matthew presents Jesus as the Christ of Scripture, the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation. He hadn't come to abolish, he'd come to fulfill. I find it wonderful to think tonight, here am I, here are you, towards the end of the 20th century, directly related to Abraham, Moses and David, through Jesus. Abraham is our father. Moses, through Jesus, and the new Moses is our teacher. David, through Jesus, great David's greatest son, is our king. We are linked with these great figures in the Old Testament through Jesus Christ. And as we look into the future, as we've looked into the past, we look into the future with confidence. We know what's going to happen. Jesus Christ is going to come back. He came in, full, in fulfillment of God's promises. They had to wait a long time for his coming. But he came in fulfillment of God's promises. He's going to come again. We're having to wait a long time for his coming. But he's going to come again in fulfillment of the promises of God. Jesus Christ supplies the continuity. Jesus Christ is the integrating principle of all things. And that is Matthew's testimony to Christ. Let us pray. I think it would be good to be silent for a moment and just think of this great continuity of which Jesus himself is the secret. The universe coheres in him. He's the center, the focal point of history. He sits upon the throne of God. He's the head of the universe and the head of the church. And it's God's will that in all things he should be preeminent. Unity and continuity in Christ. Let's worship him. We ask your forgiveness, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we have sometimes left you on the fringe, on the periphery of our lives. That we have presumed to give you a little tiny place somewhere sometimes in some ways we ask your forgiveness that we have denied you that which is your right which is the supreme throne the place of unity the place of authority the place of continuity and we pray that increasingly in our thinking and living you may have the preeminence I want to pray especially for freshmen and women in the university who come to London to other colleges to study, that in their studies they may increasingly find you to be Lord.
We ask it for the glory of your great and worthy name. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.